Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655.
Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Four Persons and welcome to this Monday of Passion Week. And tonight's show gets into a subject many Christians probably don't really even bother to think about, but I think it's kind of significant. Every year, Holy Week, this season, uh, falls at a different time than the year before. The dates are constantly moving. Have you ever stopped to think about why that is? Do we actually know the dates of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Excuse me, Jesus Christ. And if we do, why do we not commemorate these events on the actual days that they occurred? So let's look at the first question for starters. Can we determine what the actual date of the death of Jesus Christ was. And on this point, I actually agree with Catholic apologists like Jimmy Aiken of Catholic Answers that we can. And there's two texts in particular that I want you to focus on, two biblical texts that I want you to focus on. And the first is Luke chapter 3. And this place is the start of Jesus' ministry at the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, stating that Jesus was, quote, about 30 years old. The second text is John chapter 2, verse 20, where the Pharisees state that the temple had been under construction for 46 years. Those two passages give us two known and documented historical references that we can use to place of Jesus' ministry, and they both point to 30 A.D. So we know in the Gospels that the events that follow in the Gospels, that follow the start of Jesus' ministry, we know that his crucifixion and death occurred three years later. So by that calculus, that would place the date or the year of the crucifixion of Jesus at 33 AD. Now, it's an important to state that the early church tradition placed the date of the crucifixion of Jesus at March 25th because it was believed that a great prophet would be conceived and die on the same day. In fact, today the Catholic Church still commemorates the death of Dismas, the good thief on the cross, on March 25th. Uh, but March 25th, as a date of the cru- actual date of the crucifixion of Jesus, has proved to be unworkable. And here's why. Since the Passover was based on cycles of the moon, it changed every year. So the day of the week that it started on would change every year. And since we know that Jesus died on a Friday, the eve of the Passover had to be on a Friday, and it had to be three years after the start of Jesus' ministry. It also had to be on a day that historical evidence, historical documentation would show that there was an eclipse and an earthquake. Now, the odds against all of these events lining up on a single day by, by chance would be astronomical. 
So if there was a specific date, all these criteria, well, you would have to believe that it is the correct date of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, folks, we do have such a date. What is that date? Well, it happens to be today's date, April 3rd. That's right. April 3rd, 33 A.D., we can say with very, very strong conviction is the actual date of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So why are we not commemorating the crucifixion of Jesus today? So to answer, I want to go back to the Old Testament, and I want to cite three Old Testament passages. First, let's start with Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, where God said, On the first day of the week, let there be light, and there was light. The second is Genesis 2, verse 2, which says that God rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And the third passage uh, text that I want to cite is from Exodus chapters 11 and 12, which tell us all about the Passover, the Passover meal, and how the Israelites were saved from the death by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils, and how they were freed from slavery, how they were set set free. Now, all of these things forward, obviously, to Jesus Christ. And historically, there was lively debate in the church centuries back on just when the Easter celebration should take place. But in the end, the church decided that more important than the actual dates were the days. And there can be no doubt that the Holy Spirit guided those deliberations because the ties to the Old Testament proved to be essential in showing that Christianity is not just a replacement of the Old Covenant, but the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. When the Bible recorded that God said, let there be light on the first day, Sunday, it is actually pointing forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John says this emphatically in his gospel. Quote, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So John, who begins his gospel with the same three words as Genesis in the beginning, deliberately to point back to Genesis, is showing us that the light that's talked about in Genesis 1 is in fact Jesus. And the first day of creation, Sunday, actually report, points forward to Resurrection Sunday. When Genesis says that God rested on the seventh day, Saturday, it pointed forward to the Sabbath rest of God, tomb. This is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Now the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus and the things that were done were sore afraid, saying, Indeed, this was the Son of God. 
So the church is directly tying these events to the creation week. Again, from John's gospel, we hear that he was in the beginning with God, and all things came to be through him, and without him, no thing came to be. So the God of the creation being directly tied to the God of the recreation is one and the same God. So the eighth day, Resurrection Sunday, is actually the first day all, all over again. So the Sunday that's in Genesis 1 is the day of creation. The Easter Sunday is the day of the new creation. The slavery of Israel in Egypt foreshadowed the greater slavery to sin. The Passover meal is fulfilled in the Last Supper. The slaughter of the lamb is fulfilled in the crucifixion. Death passed over us by the blood of the lamb, and we ate the Passover lamb, which foreshadows the Eucharist and is celebrated in the book of Revelation as the supper of the lamb. Through this, we are set free like the Israelites of long ago. The typology is so crystal clear here that the church insisted that the commemoration of the Passion had to track closely with the Passover so that the binding between them could not be missed. That is why the day became more important than the actual date. And that is why we do not commemorate the crucifixion and the resurrection on the actual days they occurred. With that, I want to bring on my co-host for this evening. He's going to be one of the regulars here at the Four Persons. Louis Agondo, welcome to the show. How are you doing this evening? I am very well, brother. I'm glad that um, you have, you know, I, I can be part of the team and serve Christ in his church, his bride. It's a pleasure to meet you all. I hope that I can be a service to all of you. Ave Maria. Well, I have no doubt that, that you will be. So so let's start with some of the things that, that we, we talked about before when we were kind of putting this show together. So one of the things that, that now, now full disclosure, me and Lewis belong to this anti-Catholic group on Facebook that uh, mo- most of the members in there are virulently, virulently anti-Catholic. They don't want to hear uh, the Catholic position or, or follow the Catholic position. And some of the members are members of groups like the Seventh, Seventh-day Adventists and groups like that. Uh, who insists that we're still under the seventh day? Very blatant that they don't want to understand uh, Catholic doctrine um, properly. Most of the time, before we even have to get to a debate, we have to usually correct them of, of their accusations. For example, the typical things: Catholics believe that we can, you know, pray to the dead and nonsense like that. When we, we're not praying to the dead, for example, we are, we're asking the living people in heaven to pray to Christ with us and for us, which is different. And what the Bible right. is forbidden. So, I mean, they we have to. They usually start with a straw man, and normally, ninety nine percent of the time, we have to correct that straw man before we can even begin the debate. And often, no, you're um, you're absolutely correct. So, so let's start with this idea. 
one of the, one of the tenets of the belief of, of uh, Seventh Day Adventism is they attack both the incarnation and the crucifixion in this respect. They say that uh, Mary gave birth to a human part of Jesus, which is completely unsupported by Scripture. And then on the cross, only the human Jesus died. Jesus God did not die on the cross. Lewis, explain why in those two positions, they're actually denying the Christian faith. They're denying the foundation of the Christian faith. If that was not God who was born in that stable, and that was not God who died on that cross, we're in a lot of trouble. Could you explain why to anybody that might be tuning in? Well, there's a lot to cover, so I'll do my best to cover, like, the main points that I know. For one thing is that um, by denying that, um, by claiming that Mary only gave birth to Jesus' human side, and also saying that only Jesus' human half died on the on the cross, they are definitely adding to Scripture, because nowhere in Scripture does it make this claim. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever separate on Christ's human half from his divine half at all. Scripture always calls it eternally. Well, as soon as he um, became the world, the Word made flesh, he was just given the title, you know, both divine and human. So I mean, like, um, it's a very blatant attempt to to just deny logical thinking because they know that if they acknowledge that Christ, you know was always, you know, God, they have to acknowledge that Mary, with him being God, always, you know, is the mother of God in that sense. Not That right. doesn't mean that, you know, Mary existed before Christ, for we know that Christ simply always was with his father. But it's just simply saying that she was the, the, the portal, the path that, you know, the gate that, um, that God used to bring his son into the world that she played a role in, you know, bringing Christ. And that, by common sense, makes, you know, her his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, Catholic Answers, you know, which I learned a lot from, also makes a very good point. Um, a scripture calls Mary the mother of the Lord. And um, the Lord is always used to refer to God. Even, you know, you, they'll try to make the argument that... Um, the Lord also refers to Jesus, but you can't separate the two since God, Christ is God. There is no distinction. First so. of all, let's let's start with uh, do you, do you are you familiar with the term uh, a syllogism? Do you know what a logical syllogism is? I'm learning, so, but please explain. A logical a logical syllogism works like this: A equals B, and B equals C. Therefore, A equals C. That's how it works. So that would be like saying that all pines are trees. I'm, I'm sorry. It's like saying that all pines are evergreens and all evergreens are trees. Therefore, all pines are trees. That's a logical syllogism. So if you approach the Bible from a syllogistic standpoint, you say that Mary is the mother of Jesus and Jesus is God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. There's no other way to parse it. The other thing to look at is that if it was purely a human Jesus who died on the cross, we're all in trouble because the Bible says Jesus was the mediator between God and man. It was Jesus who reconciled God and man. 
Well, that could only be done with the eternal sacrifice. A, a, a finite human sacrifice could not close that, gas, uh, that chasm. So it wouldn't matter, Lewis, how many times you or I died on a cross. You or I could die on a cross every day for the next thousand years, and it wouldn't satisfy the debt. It took an infinite sacrifice. It took a sacrifice of infinite value, and that's why God had to come here, take on human flesh, and die on the cross. Now, people say, well, it's impossible for God to have been born of a woman. It's impossible for God to have died on the cross. Of course, it's impossible. That's why it's called well, a miracle. Well, I want to reference exactly, and I also want to reference um, scriptural um, direct knowledge of this. Going back to Luke one forty three, when uh, Mary is, you know, rejoiced for being the mother of the Lord, the carrier of the old Lord. If we understand its Old Testament accident, the conclusion becomes clear. Elizabeth, which was the woman referring to Mary as the mother of the Lord. If you see a text from 2 Samuel 6, 9, um, where David exclaims concerning the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? When Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, why is this granted that the mother of the Lord come to me? It was revealed that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. And um, I know that this may sound weird how it relates, but Christ is called the the, um, the New Word, the, the Ark, uh, not the Ark, but the... The new covenant. covenant. Uh, Yeah, the new covenant. Um, That is something that can only be given to some a property that belongs solely to God. Um, For the old um, for the old covenant, um, it came fully from God and it was one with God. The same is naturally applicable to Christ. There is no distinction. Um, Right. Sorry about that. No, no, absolutely. It's a very valid point that you made. So I want to jump forward to uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where it talks about the woman clothed Um, with the sun. And if I can add one quick detail, very Mm -hmm. one quick detail, and I learned this from um, prominent Catholic apologist. Well, he's not an apologist, but he is a Catholic um, with a doctorate degree, awesome person, um, Dr. Taylor Marshall. He added something that's very strong that we should all know. the the chapters we added that, but uh, to kind of make the Bible you know run more clearly and smoothly. Mm-hmm. But if you take away the thing, everything is kind of just all one revelation. And it says right before it introduces Mary, that the Ark of the New Covenant is descending from heaven, and then you know Revelation twelve starts. That is referencing mm-hmm. what we all know that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Sorry for for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, no, that's a very, very, very valid and strong point, is that John is looking up in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant, or at least what they understood to be the Ark of the Covenant, had been missing for 500 years. And John is looking at the temple in heaven, and he beholds the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, immediately anyone, any first century Jew reading this would say, oh, okay, the Ark of the Covenant that went before battle in David— But then, like you said in the very next verse, he describes the Ark of the Covenant as a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars upon her head. So this is making exactly the point that that you are referencing, that the Ark of the Covenant is a typology. 
The Old Testament Ark of the Covenant is a typology, and let's prove this. Look at the three things that the Ark of the Covenant held inside of it. The first thing the Ark of the Covenant held inside of it was the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which, as you know, is the Word of God. Well, what does John, and it's deliberate that John is pointing in his gospel back to Genesis. He keeps going back to Genesis. So what does John say about Jesus? In the beginning was the Word. He is the Word made flesh. Right. So the Word of God is a person. Okay? What else does the Ark of the Covenant hold inside of it? It holds the manna, the bread from heaven. Well, what did Jesus say of himself? I am the true bread from heaven. Those who drink my body and drink – I'm sorry. Those who drink my blood and eat my body shall have eternal life. Yes. Exactly. So the bread from heaven – is a person, okay? The third thing that is in the Ark of the Covenant is the rod of Aaron. Now, Aaron was two things. Aaron was a shepherd, and Aaron was the high priest, okay? So what does Jesus say of himself? I am the good shepherd who lays his life down for his friends. He also, Hebrews, the the book of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus is the high priest who entered once into the holy place, being heaven. So everything that's inside the Ark of the Covenant represents Jesus. It it symbolically held Jesus inside of it. Well, Mary held the real thing. Mary held the real Jesus inside of, uh, of her. So she is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to come down here to verse 5. And this, this verse settles it, Lewis. And she brought forth yes. a man-child who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her son, her son, this is the word that's used, and her son taken up to God and his throne. You're right, it's singular. So it's saying right here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, that Mary's son is God. I don't know how people can argue with that. They tried poor arguments, and I want to um, dispute a few of them right now. They'll try and turn around saying that Mary, um, or rather the woman, is the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, the first reason that that is not, um, well, they're not completely wrong in that Mary is representing Israel. She is representing the 12 tribes. Though Mary, the woman. But it's not the 12 tribes of Israel itself. It's Mary representing them. See, they have it so backwards. They, they still fail. Yeah. Lewis, they have, they have being, it backwards. Let me, let me, let me interject yes. this real quick. They have it backwards. Revelation 12 is not pointing back to Israel and the 12 tribes. Israel and the 12 tribes is pointing forward to this. This is the fulfillment. The 12 tribes yes. of Israel is pointing forward to the Catholic Church and the 12 apostles. And Mary, and also, who is queen of the apostles. And it's also, yes, it's being used. She's being used to represent many things. She's being used, for example, they'll turn around and say that Mary, for example, never hid in the desert. And um, I would tell them, yes, that is correct, but it, it's not required for her to, that to be her. Because, again, she's being used. She's, that's a literal person. The, the, the woman is literally Mary. But as we know from Scripture, from Jesus' example, people can be used to represent events. So Mary is being used as that, and it actually calls her, um, it calls, you know, her the church. And um, if you study church history, 
Mary and the church were always synonymous. They are interchangeable. Right. So that just makes things even more clear that it's her. Um, Here's they'll try why, to say things like, go ahead. Here's why they don't want it to be Mary. They don't want it to be Mary because when you talk about what the proto-gospel was, the very first messianic prophecy, you go all the way Genesis back to Genesis 3.15. Right. And they like to mistranslate it. If you go back to the original Hebrew and you go back to the original Greek, there's only one way to trans- properly translate the verse, all right? And that is that she will crush your head while you strike at her heel. Not he, she, okay? The verse is referring to Mary crushing the head of the serpent. Through her own power? No, but through the power of God. Now, why would it be that Mary crushes the head of the serpent and not Jesus? Okay, it says it says that you will have enmity with the woman. So the enmity is between the serpent and the woman, and your offspring will have enmity with the offspring of the woman. Okay, now why do we know that that is the correct interpretation? Because when you jump forward to Revelation 12 again, and you come down here to verse 17, it just it shows it all up. And the dragon was angry against the woman and went off to wage war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is saying right here that the children of the woman are the true believers of God. That's what it's saying right here. Now, if you take their interpretation, then you have to believe that the Israel is the true believers of God. Well, the problem with that now is that Israel is no more. The old covenant is closed. The old covenant has been replaced, has been fulfilled by the new covenant. Israel cannot possibly be the true believers of God, and they certainly are not the keepers of the testimony of Jesus Christ because the Jews reject Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not the making Hebrew the Jews. What's that? Yes, the Hebrew Jews, the ones that um, rejected the Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the apostles. Exactly. So, so you cannot. There's no other way. To, to parse this out than to say that the woman of Revelation twelve seventeen is the same woman of Genesis three fifteen and it is the mother of the Messiah and it is the same woman who crushes the head of the serpent. If I can also add some more um some more things that just kind of destroy the Protestant claim. This is also a reference to Jesus and Mary being immaculate, um, free from the stain of sin, because when it says you have been, you will be given, the woman will be given enmity, and her seed, you know, will be given enmity. That also means a complete and total opposition to Satan and his seed, which is sin. If you are completely in opposition to something, that means you have no part in it. You are, you know, you don't, you're not positively associated with it in any way. Right. That is what and the what, church fathers. Go ahead. Right, and where do we see support for that? We see support for that in Luke chapter one, verse twenty-eight. When you really read what the when you really read what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, it's it's really fascinating. So the two Greek words are kere and kekeratomene. The 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 the, the actual Greek translation is kere kekeratomene. 
of what the angel Gabriel is saying to Mary. Now, this is fascinating. Kere means hail. It is a salutation of royalty. The only other person in the New Testament that is that is uh, saluted with Kere or hail is Jesus himself. Okay? So this is very, very important to make this point. Does this make Mary equal with Jesus? No. Does this make Mary no. above Jesus? No. But in the Old Testament, it was understood. This was understood, and you can go back and look this up yourself. In the Old Testament, it was understood that the mother of the king was the queen mother. The mother of the king was the queen. Well, why is that important? Well, because the angel Gabriel says to Mary, your child will sit on the throne of his father David. So the angel Gabriel is saying very, very clearly that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. He is the ultimate. Every every Davidic king pointed forward to Jesus. It's what it was all about. The entire Davidic kingdom was nothing more than a foreshadowing of the king of kings. Well, if we believe that, who is the queen mother? It's very, very Mary. simple. Okay. And Gabriel recognizes this. Okay. Because the modern English equivalent of Kere would be your majesty. That would be the English equivalent. So Gabriel is literally kneeling before Mary and saying, your majesty. He recognizes Mary as his queen. Okay. The second thing. And if thing, I can also add something. Mm-hmm. Um, just right. the term hail says it all. Like like we just discussed, hail is a, is a royal term. It's a term of, of not just a leadership, but royal leadership. It's something that you only say to a king or a queen. Um, so that just gives it away. But also to mean to be full of grace, it means it's grace and holiness are synonymous, or at least it was in scriptural times. So if someone says you are full of grace, they are saying you are fully and completely holy. That is not a title that you can give someone that is that it has even an ounce of, of sin in them. Right. Or the title just wouldn't be appropriate. So Do you know, when you know what Protestants, will, 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 Protestants will say, for example, nowhere in Scripture does it say that Mary was sinless, and um, we have to disagree with that. Yes, it, it does. Says it right here. It says it right here. If you are fully okay. and completely holy... If you are fully and completely holy, that directly means that you have no sin in you. Or again, that, that title doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. Well, it, it was like if I'm describing colors, okay? And if I say the color is the most brilliant, pure white, then you can deduce from that that there's no black in it. <laughs> you can deduce from that, okay? So this is exactly what you're saying here. Now, it's very interesting how far Protestantism has gone to try to get away from this, to try to evade the consequences of this point. Do you know what the first Bible ever made was that did not uh, did not translate Luke 128 as full of grace? The very first one. Do you know what it was? The King James Bible. The King James of 1611, yes. And it's very interesting. Charis... The word charis itself, the root word, can be translated as either grace or favor, just the root word. But it's interesting that the King James translates charis as grace something like 99% of the time. 
It's like 130 out of 131 translations. Okay. How convenient that they, that the only time that they don't translate it as grace is with Mary. Well, and, and the problem that they have here is that the word charis is not used here. Charis is the root of the word that's used here. The word that's used here is k keratomene, which literally transmit, no, translated means endured from the beginning with perfected grace. In other words, from the very start of her creation, she is filled to the brim with grace to the point where not another drop of grace can can uh, be added. That is literally what the translation makes uh, means. And if I can also add something, mm-hmm. um, they'll try to say, well, Mary can't be sinless. That that can't be because even she proclaimed a savior. Um, and our, my response is that, yes, she proclaimed Christ as her savior, but that still doesn't contradict she was born sinless because it was by through the blood of Christ that Christ both saved her from sin and then removed it altogether. She was saved from sinful nature and then purged of all of it, all before she was born, right, resulting so in her ar- being born. So, so I would argue this. So what you're arguing is that God is not capable of making a woman without sin. That's what they're arguing. Yes. What about Eve? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they're trying to say, well, Eve was before Eve um, was before the the fall. But even then, that's still a very poor argument because God, he can, he makes the rules. He can make exceptions if he wants. And also, right. again, just because Mary was saved doesn't mean it has to be the same way as everyone else. Again, he can save people ahead of time, just like she, he saved her ahead of time. He saved exactly. her before he knew she even left the womb. She was saved. So she again, was saved by the same means, but not by the. Uh, she was saved by the same source, but not by the same process. Okay, and the yes. analogy that's used is, okay, you can save two persons from a pit. You can pull the person out of the pit after they've fallen into it, or you can grab the person and keep them from falling into the pit in the first place. So Mary, yes. by a singular act of grace, was preserved from falling into the pit. Now, here's here's the point that, that I, I, I would like to make. I bring up the case of Uzzah. When you look in the Old Testament, you know, familiar who Uzzah was, right? To some extent, yes. Um, okay. Now, so yes. Uzzah was a, Uzzah was a soldier. He didn't mean any harm. He saw that the that the cart had become steady, and it looked like the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall off the cart onto the ground. So he reaches up to steady it, to touch the Ark of the Covenant to steady it. He was struck dead on the spot. He was struck dead on the spot because the ark was so holy that a man could not even touch it. Well, <laughs> the ark, let's let's remember, this ark held the symbolic Jesus inside of it in three forms. The manna, the, uh, the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the rod of, uh, of uh, Aaron. Mary held the real Jesus inside of her. How much more holy would she be? Okay. Uh, God, when God appeared to Moses, God said, take the sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Holy ground. Anything, anything God touches, he makes holy. Okay? Well, Mary yes, held God inside of her for nine months. If I could say something, they have it backwards. They'll say that we teach, and this is a false, by the way, accusation on their end, which is most of what they argue against us anyway, false accusations anyway. 
But um, they, they say that Mary needed to be sinless for Jesus to be sinless, and that's not what we teach. Jesus could have easily been born sinless even if Mary was consumed with sin, but the fact is, is what you just said. Whatever God touches just becomes fully holy. So um, it still doesn't change she was born immaculate, but um, it shows that she was sinless one way or another, whether it was from birth, and it was clearly from birth, but this only just adds more um, more fuel to the fire that it shows that she's just clean. Right. So going back to the original subject of the show that we that we started off the show talking about, this all ties in. And the early church fathers wanted everyone to understand this. They they I have wanted... quotes that I can read from the church fathers too. Just let me know when you want them. Yeah, absolutely. Let me make this point, and then you jump right in with those quotes. The point that I, that they wanted to make is that you need to look at the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament as pointing forward to the New Testament. I, I love what Patrick Madrid said one one time. Patrick Madrid said the entire New Testament is about Catholics, by Catholics, and for Catholics. And the entire Old Testament are proto-Catholics. The entire Old Testament is pointing forward towards the church. Now, do we say this to disparage, disparage our Protestant brothers and sisters? Of course not. I've got friends that are very, very good people who who are Protestants, okay? But I also can't deny the truth, and the truth is that the, that the entire nation of Israel, the entire religion of Judaism is a foreshadowing of the church. It's a foreshadowing of the church, and the entire Davidic kingdom is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of heaven. That is it reminds me of how um, how Jimmy Aiken made this excellent point with the papacy and the church fathers affirmed it. <laughs> Protestants, for example, with Matthew 16, when you know Christ changes Peter's name, um, Simon's name to Peter, and then on the very same sentence, in the very same sentence, not even a, not even not even a second sentence, just the very same, he says, "And on this rock I will build my church," which blatantly shows that he's talking about Peter because then why would he change the name from Simon to Rock and then in the very right. same sentence say right. that he's found in the rock of the church on the very thing that he changed Peter's name don't, to. Don't just, it just wouldn't that, make any sense. Don't you find that argument but, um, ironic? Let me let me amplify this point that you made. But okay. if I if I could just finish saying this, yeah. um yeah. sorry not to over talk you, but um it matches the the whole parallel between the old and the new testament because if you look in the old testament, King David we have to remember Jesus is the new King David. He is the new king of the Vatican kingdom. King David himself in the Old Testament had a main servant, a main steward, which he gave the keys to his kingdom to. to and he even said this, um, whatever you shut, let no man open, and whatever you open, let no man shut. That is a direct parallel to what Jesus said to Peter. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I mean, whatever you bound on earth, um, in heaven, um, in, on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you bound in heaven will be bound on earth. Something along those lines. Um, they what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's what you're trying to say. Thank you for that correction. But um, nope, the no typology problem. is clearly there. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. um, just to add to your point, I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, no. Uh, the, 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 the point is very, very clear. So, 
you know, we, like I said, we go back to the Old Testament, and the, and the early church fathers wanted this very, very un, clearly understood that the Davidic kingdom is pointing forward to the kingdom of uh, on earth, which is Jesus said to to, to the people standing there, there are some of you uh, that will still that will not taste death before the kingdom of God comes in into being. So the kingdom of heaven is is this connection between earth and heaven. Earth and, and we see this. I'll just ask our Protestant brothers and sisters this. Read the first eight chapters of the book of Revelation and look at what worship looks like. Does it look like what's occurring in your church or does it look like what's occurring in our church? I see priests. And they'll try to robes. I see an altar. I see candlesticks. I see incense. I see a sacrifice. And if I can also add something there, um, the book of Revelation Luther had issues with it because um, there are four books he despitely um, had a love-hate relationship with. And um, we already know he hated the book of James, but he also really disliked the Revelation in Hebrews. Um, Revelation directly shows the saints alive in heaven, even before the second coming of Christ, which is how Protestants try to get, oh, they, they get through them. They'll try to say, oh, no, 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 Revelation is just taking place after Christ returns. And um, Jimmy Aiken, for example, he made it clear, he proved through church history and, you know, the, the early Christians that no, not everything in Revelation is taking place um, after Christ's second coming. There's many things that are taking place long before. And um, the saints, um, for example, worshiping Christ, like in Revelation 5.8, that is taking place long before Christ's second coming. So this is showing, even before Christ returns to reunite the, the, those in heaven with those on earth, those in heaven are fully alive, worshiping Christ, taking our prayers and giving it over to him. And um, it's funny, um, if you look at the book of Tobit, it, which they, um, in error, consider it non-canonical. There's too many reasons to go why, but um, it's canonical because, well, they'll try to say like the Hebrew Jews, for example, they rejected them, but they don't understand that their Hebrew Jews were not all the Jews. They were only a fragment of the Jews. The Jews that accepted them were the Greek Jews, and um, those were the Jews that Jesus, that they accepted Jesus and the apostles. And um, ironically, they're the, um, they're the Jews that um, Jesus took the, the canon of, you know, the Old Testament from the, the final canon, the Septuagint canon which is what all of church history went by. And the interesting um, thing is when they talk about the Hebrews rejecting the book of Tobit and the other uh, uh, um, deuterocanonical books, uh, they're t- referring to the Council of Jamnia, and these were the same Jews that rejected the New Testament. They rejected the 27 books in the New Testament. So on that note here, we've got a caller, and it's another one of our members of the four persons. So I, I want to welcome him on. Uh, Fred, how are you doing this evening? Good. How are you? Doing great. So, Fred, I want to introduce you to Lewis. Lewis, I want to introduce you to Fred. And uh, these it's a are a pleasure to meet you, Fred. Hi, Lewis. Good to meet you. So, Fred, I know we're tied up for most of the evening. I don't know how much of the show that you've been able uh, to catch, but what we're really kind of delving into is the reason why the dates move for the crucifixion and uh, for the resurrection is because the church wanted to make sure that the ties to the Passover in the Old Testament and the seven days of creation remained. 
that that typology was was understood and those connections, those threads remained. Um, Fred, your your comments on that? Oh, it's really cool. Uh, I saw the topic. Unfortunately, I I just literally called in right now, so I didn't hear anything before then. But I was really interested to hear what you guys had to say about it when I saw that you were going to be talking about that. I don't know much about it really at all. Well, I mean, you'll be able to hear a lot of it in the in the in the archives, of course. But you know, uh, just the the Reader's Digest condensed version. One of the parallels that we see in John's Gospel, it's not a coincidence that the Book of Genesis and John's Gospel start with the same three words in the beginning, because John is tying the two books together. And on the first day of creation, God sets, says, let there be light, and there was light. And John tells us very clearly that Jesus was the light. In him was light of the human race, uh, and and the light was not overcome by the, uh, the darkness, did not overcome the light. And then on the seventh day of creation, we're told that God rested on the seventh day, which is Saturday. Well, this clearly points forward to Jesus rest in the tomb. This clearly mm-hmm. shows that God died and rested in the tomb. And then the other parallel that they're drawing together is everything from the Passover, from the Passover sacrifice to the Passover meal to to the uh, death passing over them by the protect, protection of the blood and, and, the, and of the lamb. And finally, the Exodus, which is released from the slavery, which points forward to the release from the slavery of sin. The church wanted very, very much to make sure that that every year that we're connecting the Passover to Easter, that we understand that it's the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. That it's it's not uh, Christianity was not some religion that just popped up and said, okay, we're done with Judaism, we're going to create something new. Uh, mm-hmm. this, is, this is literally the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. Awesome. Really beautiful. Um, I'm sorry that I got us off track. I wanted to apologize, but there was a lot we could, you know, make from this. Um, my apologies. No, I think your contributions were, were, were fantastic. Fred, we got a few more minutes before we sign off. Um, You've got some upcoming shows. Can you just kind of give us just a real quick uh, teaser of of what we have coming up with your shows in the next couple of days, or or are you at liberty to reveal that yet? Sure. Um, Tomorrow is uh, what we are tentatively calling Tangled Mess Show. That's with Deb Rojas, who is a really bright counselor, my acquaintance, who's also really funny. And the bonus is that she's also a professional musician. So her her first degree was in music. So she's uh, really well informed about liturgy and the way that uh, works to to help us draw closer to God. So it should be fun. Um, we're planning to have guests on that show in the future tomorrow. I don't think we have anybody yet, but it should be a fun discussion. And then on Thursday. Uh, I'm going to do a show that I tentatively am calling Uncounseling. We're going to take a critical look at mental health and the helping professions. And my friend Brian is going to be with me at least this Thursday, hopefully in future too. And Brian is coming into the church uh, this Easter vigil. So 
going to be oh, fun to wonderful. talk to him about his conversion experience and what led him to the church as a as a middle aged man as I am. And Brian is also fun. He's a very uh, sarcastic and funny person, so I'm hoping we'll have a good conversation. That is so wonderful. And you know your Thursday topic in in uh, particular. Me and you have a little bit of a short history with each other, but you know that the Thursday topic is something that that hits home with me. That uh, I have a lot of criticism for for a lot of pop psych- uh, psychiatry that's that's going on now. That you know you look at the name of this ministry and what it's based on, the name of this apostle it was based on, and and it's based on Mark chapter 12, that you shall love the Lord Mm -hmm. your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and your whole strength. And a a significant segment of the psychological profession uh, wants to cut two of those persons out of the equation and uh, with disastrous results. And uh, I think that's something that you'll be, that, you'll be addressing so uh wednesday we're going to have a show it's going to be the debut show of the benko Sibenko show now let me explain where that name comes from this is really ironic my last name of course is benko and the co-host his name is Sibenko, c-i-b-e-n-k-o so um which is just <laughs> strange but uh, we're going to be, be hosting a show, and it's going to be we're going to be going into where this apostolate is going, and it's really growing. It's really really going through some changes, and it's going to get to the point very soon where we're going to be doing shows seven days a week on a on a variety of of different things. So, on that note, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for this evening. Lewis, would you leave us with a closing prayer, please? Very well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, dear God, first person of the Trinity, thank you through the blood of your Son for bringing us here today, for spreading the the good news, and also doing your work by destroying slander of the church that you started, but by doing it, but, but doing it in a charitable way. Please guide us in bringing truth and light to the various confused people that attacked the church you started. Please bring mercy to them. Touch their hearts and their minds. Make us your instruments in guiding us and guiding them back to your church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 On that note, and we just ask everyone to tune in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and beyond. And we hope you enjoy this apostolate. Great things are coming. On behalf of Fred and Lewis, good night and God bless. God bless.